And uh, her and Steve, they had found this train. They got on this train that used to be an old Russian uh, troop train. She said that the train had seen better days, that the train uh, at one time in its day had to be something of, you know, quite, quite noteworthy. And she said, but now, this is what she said, the train reminded her of a beyond middle-aged, overweight woman who was overly made up and spent the night drinking and woke up still drunk. That's what she compared this train to. She said that it was, uh, it, it, it had seen better days, that it, it was not in the greatest of shape. This was a train that the, the kind of lower class, if you will, would travel on because the tickets were so cheap. And she said that she and Steve were glad they, they were overjoyed to have these tickets. And she said that, uh, you know, the, the train was um, somewhat of a party atmosphere. She said that um, there was actually, she called him the toothless porter that had something akin to a Kroger cart that went up and down the hallways of the train. And the, tra- uh, the, the grocery cart was loaded with uh, beer and, and all sorts of alcoholic beverages. And she, uh, the, the, the porter was selling this to the, the passengers. And you can imagine as the, the ride goes on through the mountainside and the more that they drink, the louder it gets. And she said that they had just crossed through Croatia and come into Slovenia. And um, she said the craziest thing happened about midnight. Uh, her and Steve were sitting in their compartment. She said every possible compartment in the train was taken and, and just crammed with people. And... Uh, she said about midnight, she and Steve were sitting in their car- compartment and the compartment door bust open and there's this man that's this hulk of a man. She said no doubt he was a bodybuilder. She said he was a monstrous man. He backs into their compartment and, you know, it took her and Steve by surprise. And she said when he turned around, she realized that he was carrying another man of equal size, just slimmer build. And um, so they... She said this man was very, very muscular. They were stunned. They didn't know what to do. And when um, they, she said that he was carrying this man the way that Kara or I would carry Madeline or Tucker or White if they fall asleep in the car on the ride home, take them into their bed. So these two men sit down in the compartment across from um, Marilyn and and, um, Steve, and they just sit there and smile at him. And the man who had been carried figured that there was a language barrier between the two couples. So he began to speak English. (coughs) And um, he told the the Elliott family that he had learned English by watching TV all day. And that's how he had learned English. So she goes on to tell about how they they conversed and they discovered that their two new friends were actually brothers. And their names were Donna Jell and Debar Petterman. And when they were 13, Debar, the younger one, um, they were swimming in a river. And there was an accident that happened, a severe accident that left Debar crippled and uh, paralyzed basically from the waist down. Um, Donna Jell, the older brother, had taken on the task since that time to carry Debar everywhere he went, Um, through school, um, after school, just everywhere they went, Donna Jill had carried his little brother. As youngsters, uh, they they went. 
uh, they were, she, she noted that they were fanatical about basketball. And um, they told about how uh, they, they were from a very young country, Slovenia. This is back in the 90s, and their country was less than 10 years old at the time, and it had only been involved in one war. And uh, they were very proud of it because it lasted for at least 10 days. So. But anyway, um, she said that the, the two couples sit there and talked all through the night, laughing and exchanging stories. And then somewhere in the wee-wee hours of the morning, they came to a stop. These brothers were actually on their way to Rome to watch a, a basketball tournament. But um, they, they exchanged email addresses somewhere into Italy. Um, Donagel jumped up, put on his huge backpack, and swept Debar up in his arms, and they were gone. And uh, when, I, when I heard her tell that story, I just I thought to myself, can you just... Now, i got to forewarn you, I'm a guy that likes to ask questions. My, my sick somewhat twisted mind, likes to ask questions. So I was, I was sitting there and I thought to myself, can you just imagine the stories that these two brothers could tell? I wonder how many times that Donagel, the one that carried, had to encourage his little brother because his little brother probably felt like he was nothing but a failure, he was a shame, and he was nothing but a burden to his older brother. I wonder how many times Donagel was on the receiving end of mockery whenever he was carrying his little brother out in public. I wonder how many times Donagel, the big bodybuilder type person, even had to defend and fight for his little brother that he was carrying. So when I heard that story about Donagel and Debar, it made me think of a similar story in the New Testament, and that's where I want to go tonight. I want us to turn to Mark chapter 2. And if nobody else will amen tonight, it sounds like Wyatt's going to talk to me. <clears throat> We're going to read 12, 12 verses here. When you're there, say amen. amen. Okay. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, Capernaum, however you want to say it, Capernaum, if you want to call it that, um, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man, the mat on, the man in the mat. Ah, let me try that again. They lowered the mat that the man was laying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. There's a lot that we could talk about in those 12 verses. We could talk about the faith of others. 
We could talk about um, there was a Jewish belief at the time. The rabbis believed that, um, you know, maybe sin, um, th- this man wasn't sick because of sin, but sin was the root of all sickness and illness. Uh, we could talk about that. We, we could talk about a lot of things about this. I, I've got a lot to get through, so I'm going to try to speed up here. But <clears throat> I, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about how, and I'm going to use this word a lot tonight, and I hope it doesn't scare anyone because in a lot of your Pentecostal churches, um, you hear the word community and people say, that's the root word of communism. Well, I'm, I'm not going there, but we're going to talk about the word community tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about, if you don't like that word, the body, okay? We're going to talk about how this story here is a snapshot. It's a cross-section of, of, a, of a very small community. It's a Christ-centered, Christ-redemptive um, community that are carrying this man here. And it's also a picture of exactly how the church should look in this uh, story here. So don't get scared if I throw the word community around tonight. Four individuals who came from various backgrounds had banded together in solidarity for the betterment of one person here tonight. Four friends had been seen lumbering through town carrying some sort of contraption. It may have been like a couch. Uh, The Bible talks about a mat, a bed. It just really depends on the, the, the translation that you use. But somehow there was something that they were carrying through town, this man to Jesus. Four friends wanted to find Jesus for their friend. And my, my inquiring mind, like I said, gets carried away wondering about the possibilities and the details of how these four guys ended up together, working together for this one singular purpose. Were they friends from childhood? It's a legitimate question that you have to ask. Was the man that they were carrying, was he always paralyzed? Or like Debar... Did something happen to him in his childhood or even in his adulthood that um, caused him to be in this predicament? Was it a degenerative type of predicament that he was in? Um, Were these four men who were carrying the man with him, were they with him if it was an accident, in fact? Were they with him when it happened? That's a question that you have to look at when you ask this. Were these four men that were carrying him, were they in some sort of way culpable for what happened to him. And now they spent the rest of their days carrying him because of guilt and some sort of penance that they were trying to pay back. That's a question that you have to ask. Was this actually a group of friends? Or were these just good Samaritan types like whenever you're driving through town and someone has a car stall Four or five guys will jump out and help that person push their car off to the side into a parking lot. Was it that type of thing that these were good Samaritan types and they saw that Jesus was there and there was the possibility that if they could get this derelict beggar to Jesus that he was going to be healed? It's a possibility. I think that we could go back and possibly 
have more evidence pointing toward the fact that they were friends. But if they were friends, and if they did carry him all the time, I wonder how many times they had carried him to the city gate to beg. I wonder how many times they had carried him to the market. How many times they had carried him to the temple to worship. How many times they had carried him to a wedding to celebrate. How often did they do this? How close were they to this man? So they all banded together here. And the problem was is that when they got to the location where Jesus was, they realized that everybody else in town had the same M.O. They wanted to do the same thing. History tells us that when Jesus was in Capernaum, he typically made his home at Peter's house. And there is a good possibility that this was actually Peter's home that Jesus was teaching in. So, this was Peter's home. This was Peter's roof that they were going to mess up. And the Bible tells us that it was a great crowd. The hero had come home. The house was jammed with people. People were all over the house. People were jammed up in the doorways. They were jammed up in the windows. They were outside the windows looking in. They were outside the doors. Everybody's craning their neck. Everybody wants to see Jesus. And these four men, they show up in anticipation to see Jesus. And it looks something more like a um, Walmart on Black Friday with $25 flat screen TVs. I mean, everybody's just pressing in. They want that. And they realize that there is no way that they can carry this man on this mat into the house, navigate, penetrate the crowd, and get to a, a place where they can actually sit at the feet of Jesus. So they had to go with plan B. At this point, the young men, I say young, we don't know, but at this point, the men calculate a plan that was so bold, so insane, so creative that it bordered on the edge of lunacy. And the men, they planned to get back out and work their way around the crowd and the homes that were built, the houses that were built in, in that time period all had flat roofs and they had an outer staircase that walked up to the house and on top of the house that flat roof was there and it acted as a veranda and as extra living space. And Pastor is a, he's a nut about apologetics. And I'm kind of crazy about archaeology, so I read about a lot of this stuff. It makes for an interesting conversation sometimes. But, you know, so I've read about these homes, and these homes, they were built so that you've got this flat roof, and they could have parties and all of that. And also, if there was family that needed to move in or get married or whatever, it was easy to take this flat roof and build another structure on top of it. So at this point, the men, they make their way to that roof and they plan to start tearing parts back. Now some of the roofs had trap doors or escape doors. 
Some of them did not. But while we're just thinking about things out of this story here, can you just imagine, can you just close your eyes and hear in your mind the wild giggling of these guys as they're challenging each each other on to tear through the unnamed man's roof here? I wonder if these young men had to jeer at each other because that's what young men do whenever they challenge each other to do something so crazy. When cell phones became really a new thing and they started putting these tall cell phone towers on uh, these hillsides and everything. Back in southeast Missouri, one of the guys that I graduated with, we loved pulling up to one of those towers at midnight when nobody was around and climbing up those towers just as far as we could. And we had to cheer each other on. You chicken! You big chicken! And you get up there on that tower, and that, you don't see it, but when you're up on that tower, that thing is, you know. So I wonder if these men, while they're on the roof, if they're cheering each other on, you big sissy, I dare you. And then I wonder if one of the guys... You know, he's the one with the common sense if he perhaps just said, guys, guys, do you realize that we're tearing through someone's roof? This probably isn't the best idea that we've ever come up with. But then, so that's, that's one aspect that you've got to look at, but you've got another one over here. Can you imagine being inside the home? You're part of the crowd. You've waited all day. You have walked miles for this. You opted to forego your lunch because when Jesus is around teaching, if someone just even brings a sack lunch, lunch is free for everybody. Everybody eats for free. You have endured the pushing You have endured the shoving. You have endured the cramped quarters in this home just to make it into that dark room where Jesus is and the master, you're sitting at the master and his feet. You're within reaching distance of Jesus and it looks like finally your moment is going to happen where finally You're going to be able to talk to Jesus and finally he's going to be able to meet you at that point of your need. And you're so close to all of it happening that you can taste it. And then all of a sudden, a shower of dirt begins to fall on your head. Falls into your eyes. And you hear a noise above that you realize is the roof is literally coming apart. In that dark room as you're sitting there listening listening to Jesus, light begins to show in and all the attention of the room, Jesus included, is turned to that light that has just appeared in the ceiling and there are four faces that peer over the edge and look in. No doubt this was a showstopper. How would any teacher or preacher, or public speaker go on without addressing this right away. I would like to tell you some stories that me and Kara have endured in churches at this point, but 
I realize that Shane puts these things over the internet sometimes, so we're not going to go on with any of those stories. But if you're in the crowd and you fought and this happens, what kind of attitude do you have? But Jesus, he sees these men, they let this man down, went so far, so crazy as to tear part of a roof off, and for the first time since this crowd showed up in this home, since this crowd started to press in on Jesus, he sees people who do not have a selfish end in mind. They do not have a mixed motive. They uh, are not trying to get Jesus to do something through manipulation. They're not trying to use their self-righteousness as the Pharisees did as a badge or trying to turn this into a transaction of something that they deserve. What Jesus saw in these men that day was bold, pure, audacious faith, the likes of what he hadn't seen anywhere. In Galatians 6, the first four, five, six, I think it's uh, five or six verses, Paul writes that we should bear one another's burdens. And then you go three verses later, it says, each one of you should bear your own burden. Okay? And I personally believe that this is a snapshot that Paul gives us of how this cycle of community, of body, works with each other. The maturation process of redemptive community is a process of moving from being carried to carrying our own load because Jesus, the man came in, carried. Then Jesus said, take up your mat. So he carried his own load. What used to carry him, he's now carrying. And then there's a point where we step in in other people's lives and we carry them to Jesus. So, This process is that there's times that we carry, then there's times that we need to be carried along. And it's okay. And I know that there's times that whenever you hear this message, whenever you hear this, not this message, but you hear this scripture portion talked about, that it's something, it's a natural segue for missions, and our movement is focused on missions. It's it's the lifeblood of of our movement. We, we were founded as a missionary movement to fund missionaries, to train, to send missionaries. And we love to use the scriptures that, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to spend just a few minutes talking to you about the two postures that were represented in this here. First, we have people who are strong, and then we've got people that are weak. So that's what we're going to spend just the next few minutes talking about. What I, and I forgot to tell you, what I want to talk to you tonight about is... Um, I'll carry you, you carry me. I don't know if you have to have a title or anything like that, Shane, but that's close enough. That'll work, okay? The first posture that we have is those that are strong. And I want you to know that whenever you step in to help someone carry their load, to lift their load, you are guilty of fulfilling the law of God. Thank you. We need you. We need people that step in and that help people. 
that carry people to Jesus. The body cannot function without people like you, the strong. We need people who are willing to do just exactly that. In one sense of the word, God has called you to be a rescuer. He's called us to be a divine rescue project. How about that? To be involved with a divine rescue project. But then in another sense, he did not call you to rescue people just so you can capitalize upon weaknesses of those people. And it's a hard balance. It's it's hard. We all know and have met people that love to rescue people. It happens in relationships. Have you all ever had a a friend or maybe a child that loved to rescue date? Find a project, a person that's their project, and they're looking for an opportunity. Really what they're looking for, it's false humility, looking for a way to capitalize and, and uh, showcase their own talents is really sometimes what that amounts to. But when the glory, when the project is fixed, the interest is gone, and the project is over, the disadvantaged is kicked to the side, and, and such false humility like that when people take on rescue projects in the wrong spirit, it, it, it's the total antithesis of how Jesus operated in ministry. If you find your identity as part of the strong, I want to ask you a very hard and sobering question right now. If you find yourself aligned on that side of the equation, do you realize, or have you realized, that unless you're willing to let others see you when you are truly weak and to carry you, that at some point you're going to become a danger and you're going to cause a deformity in the body of Christ. For those of us that are self-starters, self-encouragers, those who have pulled their self up by their bootstraps, if you will, and they thrive on their own. They don't need attention. They don't need the applause. There is nothing harder for people like that. And I'm there with you. There is nothing harder for people like that to be seen as weak in any context. Those who find themselves in this category will go to crazy lengths to cover their weaknesses so that they can be perceived as strong. And I want to take a sidebar here and tell you that the obsession with perception in the American church is killing the work of Christ in America. Being so drunken with our own image and our relativism and our own successes 
that, that we forget what real ministry is and that real ministry has nothing to do with how we are perceived or how well we can self-promote. Real, real, real ministry, real uh, community has nothing to do with that. You remember the story, the child story about the king who was going to go to a parade and the king wanted the finest clothes in all the land. So he hired a tailor and the tailor was a crook. He was a swindler. And it, to make a long story short so I can get through this quicker tonight, you know, when parade time came, the king was actually parading before the, his kingdom naked. And he thought that, you know, he had been told that he was so clothed in glory and everything. That is a picture of the American church because we are so drunk with our own image and so obsessed with how we look and how we are perceived. And it's scary to me. But people who are strong, we like to create false environments and keep people at arm's length so that we don't have to take any real probing or hard up-in-your-face type questions. Here are a couple reasons why I believe that the community can come deformed from this. When you take a position where you're always the strong one and you're the one that's going to come to the rescue of others all the time, it implies that everyone that you are interacting with is weak. Weaker than you. And it becomes easy for me to force other people into the hole of being needy all the time. And it's too easy for the gifts that God has given those that are the weak ones to be silenced because we come to the situation thinking that we have the answer. Um, that we're the one that's there to help. Simple example of this. How many of you will go to the hospital and pray with sick people? I mean, you've done it here at church. How many times have you gone to the hospital to pray with a sick brother or a sick sister? Sometimes they're on their deathbed. And you walk in there to pray life over the person, and you walk out so awed because that person prayed for you and put you in your place. Physically, they're the weak one. That's not always the case, is it? When a person takes on the position of always being the strong one and always wanting to rescue and carry others without um, learning the lesson that they are weak also, um, this is hard. That person tends to forget that their job is to bear others to Jesus. And instead what they end up doing is they bear others and they end up bearing burdens. Not burdens to Jesus, but they end up bearing burdens. And it's not your job to hold on to everybody's burdens because whenever you do that, it opens up a door for all types of fringe behavior and weird things that 
addictions and, and things like that and say, you're talking to the Wednesday night crowd, man. Why are you saying this? I don't know why I'm saying this, but this is what God put on my heart for you, okay? Whenever, whenever you, you carry people's burdens and you can't release it to Jesus, burnout comes and exhaustion comes and the spirit-led compassion and empathy that you have for other people is easy to lose. And you become perpetually frustrated because you feel like the shark in the water that has all these parasites on you all the time. But I want you to know that the antidote to that is a Jesus-centered, redemptive community where all of us, the weak, the strong, we can all use our God-given uh, gifts and talents. Everybody can participate. So sad to see churches become sidetracked with personality and they anchor what God's doing to a personality of a leader or something like that. It's so sad when that happens. In a redemptive community, none of us have all the answers. We all have a part of the equation. None of us are a one-stop shop. How long has it been since you really opened yourself up and let someone see where you were really weak? Because I want to tell you something, and I know this from experience. It is easy, easy, easy to fake vulnerability. There are areas in our life that we are genuinely vulnerable in. And then there are areas in our life that we can fake vulnerability and we can say to a person, oh, I'm weak, look at this, while we're really hiding this real area of our life that we're really vulnerable in. I want you to know that needing help does not negate strength. Have you ever been involved in a class or something at work where you didn't know the answer and you wanted to ask the question, but you were scared to ask the question because you thought, everybody will look at me like I don't know what I'm doing. Been there. But if you would realize that everybody sitting in that class wants to know the answer to that too, and they're all pretending and playing the same role that you are, if we could ever get past these self-limitations like this, these self-protections that we've got going on, we would amaze ourselves. And then I want you to know that <clears throat> you cannot be carried if you don't want to be. As the father of three adorable, loving, darling children, um, I can tell you that there's one five-year-old little boy that if he doesn't want to be carried, ten drunk Irishmen ain't going to pick that child up. He's, I mean, how, how, do you, how does a child like that become like that? I mean, and adults are the same way. There are times that someone in the body of Christ will see through our self-protections and they will come to us to pick us up. You know what the natural response is? We go into dead sack mode. 
Everything's all right. Don't try to help me. Everything's all right. I don't need your help. So that's what I've got to say to you that find yourself on the strong side of the equation. Yes, you are strong, but God has designed it so that there is a sort of divine paradox where you are strong, but you are still weak. Appearances don't equal reality. And you're only as strong as your community. For those that might find yourself on the weak side of the equation. And this one's a lot shorter than the last one, okay? I forgot my cell phone, so I have no clue what time it is. The other side of the equation is those who are carried often. They have no problem with being carried. In fact, some of them look forward to being carried. There is no shame in being carried along. Jesus was carried along. Frequently. In the garden, Jesus pled with his friends to stay with him. And he knew that they were going to bolt. He knew that they were going to run. But he all but begged them to stay. Jesus had to be carried along on his road to his crucifixion. Jesus often relied on others to meet his needs. This is how the kingdom is designed. It's a give and it's a take. It's a, we're the guest, we're the host. It's these paradoxes that seem to fuse together so well. <clears throat> Like I said, none of us have all the gifts. None of us have all the talents. None of us are a one-stop shop. We're all collectively reliant on one another to function in the body. And then I want to, I don't want to get into some tender spots for people, but let me say this, that there are seasons that we walk through in our life where you may be strong, but there are seasons where you have to be carried. Sometimes there's situations that arrive that are arise that we have no control over. Extreme grief. Um, the, the, these situations, these circumstances, throw us into a period of needing others to even simply function on the most basic level. <clears throat> and our lives seem to implode in a way. It could be due to a tragedy. It could be due to a sickness, a failure. But I want you to understand that if you find yourself in one of those seasons, those seasons were never intended to be forever. They were never meant to become your identity. They were never meant to be the calling card that you operate under. I want you to know that there is life after that season passes. Whenever you accept help from your brothers and sisters in the body or the community, you are really receiving a sign from God that He loves you. And you should receive it with open hands, open heart. So those that find yourselves in the role of being carried more than you carry others, this is not your permanent role. You have giftings, you have strengths, you have talents, you have contributions to make to the body 
And we all need them. And we can all draw strength from what you can contribute. <clears throat> I want to give you a couple last thoughts here. Um, well, I said I did. I guess I don't want to. I lost my notes. Who left my last thoughts at home? Here's what I can tell you about body ministry. I think Kara sabotaged me. That's what I think. I guess she's not in here. She's not in here. Well, what I can tell you from someone that's been, ah, ah, ah. I sabotage myself. I, I do recant my last statement. We are carried to Jesus by one another. It's Jesus, though, who sustains us. It's Jesus who gives us hope. It's Jesus that gives us strength. It's Jesus that gives us uh, healing in our lives. It's Jesus that has all the power. It's not the power of the person that's carrying you. And oftentimes, if the same person carries you over and over and over and over and over, those that need to be carried often look to that person that has carried them so many times as their own personal Jesus. And that's very unhealthy. The thing about being carried along, it's called doing ministry. <clears throat> sometimes you carry, sometimes you, you're carried. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. But this being carried and carrying, um, it's how God designed this thing. And I can tell you something that I've learned about ministry, that doing ministry, doing true ministry, okay, I, I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but doing true ministry that brings life, not gets numbers into a place, not doing events, I'm not talking about it. True ministry that changes people's lives, that gives life to them in the dead parts of their lives. True ministry is never convenient. True ministry is never easy. True ministry rarely happens on our own timetable. True ministry is chaotic. True ministry is always messy and the roof does tend to fall in whenever you operate with true ministry. So, I want to ask you something. Are you strong enough? Is your spirit strong enough to allow or accept help? We are in the community together. And there's going to be times that you're carried along. There's times that you're going to have to carry others. It's possible that God designed it this way so that we practice on each other how our relationship with God is going to be. Did you know that I'm your guinea pig for God? There is great value in this is something that I see as a um, hindrance for today's church. 
that people don't know people anymore. I mean, we've lived in Tuscaloosa now for five years this month. I know three of my neighbors. I'm not involved in their lives. Used to when you moved into a neighborhood, and I don't fault the people in Magnolia Park at all. But when you would move into a neighborhood, everybody wanted to know you. You wanted to know everybody. And now we've become so privatized and so um, sectarian, so compartmentalized that we, we don't involve others in our life. And it's not my neighbor's fault. But in here, guys, there is great value to being so intertwined and interwoven into each other's lives because that's where your strength is going to come. If you've got a problem, your brother can come to you and help you. If an ox falls into a ditch, you're going to go after him. We need to go after each other. Heavenly Father, a little bit different tonight, but God, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that it's what you laid on my heart for this body tonight. God, I pray that you would help us to understand that even when we don't want to be, we are critical in other people's lives and in their situations at their point of need, God. You have us involved in each other's lives when we don't even realize it. Help us to be aware. Help us to be sober-minded when we talk to our brothers and sisters, God, that we are listening with ears to hear what it is that they're saying. God, that we, we hear clues and we hear hints at a cry of desperation, God. Because people are asking for help whether we realize it or not. God, of all people, people who claim to be people of the Spirit need to be full of the Spirit and ready to step in and ready to act whenever we hear things like that. God, I pray, I pray that Tuscaloosa First Assembly of God would become so in love with each other that come in and out of these doors every week. God, that we would become so in love with each other, so interwoven in each other's lives. God, that we would hurt when our brothers hurt and we would cry when our brothers and sisters cry and when one thing negative happens to someone that it would happen to us all, God, because we care, because that's what you've called us to do, God. God, I, I, above all things, God, above the applause, above anything that people may say about us, I just pray that we're real. God, that we are real, that we are Jesus represented to the world, that we are Jesus with skin on to this community. 
Spirit of God, do this now in our lives as we open the doors of our heart to you to move in and do. Lord, we pray for our pastor. We pray for our pastor's wife that you would just, God, let them make memories. Let them enjoy their self. God, that there would be no crisis that would arise that would disrupt what they are trying to enjoy. Um, man, I just thank you for that man of God. What a, what a blessing he's been to me personally, God. And I know for the last 20 years what he's been to this body. So we thank you. Thank you for the leadership that you've put here with the, the board and with the uh, lay leaders of this body, God. Thank you. Give them wisdom. Give them direction. Give them such a passion and a desire to see whatever it is that they're involved in, not just be good, but be excellent and to go above the uh, restrictions and the, 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 the self-imposed restrictions, God. Just let there be a spirit of excellence about everything that is done here, God. And God, above all, wreck us so that we are consumed for the lost and for those that we can carry to your feet, Lord. We pray all this tonight in that name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Before you leave,